So as we start, I have a question for you guys, and, and feel free, this is a participatory question. What do you love? If you're online, just feel free, type it in the text, you know, say, this is, this is it, I'll read that, that later, but what do you love? And, and I know we're at church, so you can say Jesus. That's fine, that's, that's the good Sunday school answer. Uh, if you're here with your spouse, you're going to say, I love my spouse because you don't want to have to walk home. Um, or your parents, you'd say this. But what do you love? What are the things that you love? Is it the outdoors? Fishing, hunting, quilting, uh, travel? I miss travel. Like, I don't get to travel a lot, but, but that's one of the things I miss right now. now. These are all things that we love. And I, I'm not trying to, to, to condemn here any of these loves. I'm not trying to say anything negative about them. But, but I just want to ask, what do you love? No one? God's creation. All right. Amen. Um, I love running. Running is one of those things that, that I know no one else here or, or not very many other people here love. My wife is, is here, so I, I know she's here with me, but uh, that's fine. Not everyone has to love the same things, but it's something that I just truly enjoy. I truly love doing. And as such, I spend much of my time, my energy, and, and even finances towards this hobby of mine. For the most part, I think that these things that we love, whether it's creation or whether it's, it's the other things that we mentioned, um, I think that these loves are secondary to Christ in our lives or, or even tertiary to, to Christ and our families. And that's where they should be, right? They, they shouldn't take precedence over Christ. They shouldn't take his, his place in our lives. Uh, you know, running, as much as I enjoy it, I, I certainly do not love running with the same strength that I have for my, the same strength of love that I have for my family or the Lord. Uh, the love that we are called to have for the Lord is total and complete. It's absolute. The, the other things in our life, the things that we do love apart from Christ should pale in comparison to the love that we have for Him. Uh, Jesus, as He was uh, walking one day as he was ministering to the people in, in the region of Perea, was asked by an expert of the law, someone who, who knew the Jewish law backwards and forwards, what the most important thing was. He was asked, what must we do for eternal life? The response that was given was that we need to love the Lord our God. That's the most important thing. And this morning, that's what I want to spend our time discussing, is, is that love that we have for God. Now, the, the full answer that was given was we need to love the Lord our God and we need to love our neighbor as ourself. These two are intertwined. It's, it's not two answers given, it's one answer. Because we cannot love God without loving our neighbor, and we cannot love our neighbor without first loving God. I mentioned this this morning because, because even though the two are intertwined, we're really only going to address the first half, loving God. And we're going to do this because it's warm, and, and I want to spend some time digging deeper into this passage. And, and if we took the whole thing, if we took the, the, the 14 verses together, we would, we would miss something in the depth of the teaching. So this morning, we're going to take just the part of the passage that talks about loving God. So if you have your Bibles with you, or if you have an app, uh, please open it up to Luke chapter 10. 
Luke chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 25 through 28, and then we're going to skip over to verse 38 through the end. So Luke, 20, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. And again, we're skipping down verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where, the woman, where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat on the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So this expert of the law comes and asks Jesus a question. Now, we don't know definitively whether this question was, was a, a, a test to entrap him, or if it was a genuine test to, to know what Jesus knew. We can't... So often we ascribe correctly to, to many of the teachers of the law and the people in the Bible this, this negative attitude towards Jesus. But here I don't know that we can necessarily do that, whether, whether he was trying to, 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 to trap Jesus or if he just genuinely had a desire to know what Jesus was saying. Jesus' reply to the question that's posed to him was to ask another question in return. It was a, a typical reply of a rabbi who, who, when asked a question, would ask the question back to the person. And, it's, and honestly, it's a typical reply that parents have towards their children. Right? We employ this method all the time with our children. When, when they ask us and they say stuff like, Hey, Dad, do you know where my shoes are at? What's the first thing we say? We can, we can say two things. We can say, well, they're probably down by the front door where you left them. Or we can ask, well, where did you take them off at? Where have you looked? And so instead of just answering the question, we ask a question in return. Or, or let's say, you know, one of our children is having a relationship problem. They're having a fight with a friend. And, and they come to us, and they're asking for advice. Again, we can give advice and tell them what to do, but, but the wiser thing for parents to do is, is to simply ask their child, well, what do you think you, would, you should do? What, what are some of the options that you have to do? So instead of asking the, or just telling the kid what to do, which I think as parents, we all know if you tell your child what to do, they're just going to go and do the opposite, right? We, we ask a question that then elicits a response from them. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing here. The, the question that the expert asks Jesus is incredibly important. It's, a, it's an incredibly important question even for us to, to ask today. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a question that we ought to be asking ourselves continually, or, or at least we need to ask ourselves in our life until we have a satisfactory answer. Because without seeking an answer to this question, we are doomed to a life of, of pain and suffering, an eternity of pain and suffering. In, in Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter and the other apostles, the, the, 
the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they begin to, to speak in, in, in all these different tongues and languages to the people around them. And the people around them are amazed at what they hear. And, and when they hear all these things that they're saying, they ask, what must we do? They say, what do we do now? We've heard the truth. What do we do now? Peter stands up and he says, believe and be baptized. And that's the same response. That's the same answer for us today as it was back then. We need to believe that the Lord Jesus, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. This is how we receive eternal life. This is how we answer the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. The answer that, that is given back to Jesus is correct and true as well. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor. It's important for us to understand that these, are, again, are not two separate answers. They're not two independent things that, that we do separately, that we work on one and then another. Uh, but they are to love God and to love people is, is something we do together. Loving God and people are interdependent. We cannot truly love God if we don't love people, and, and, and we certainly cannot love people. We cannot love our neighbor fully without loving God first. John uh, plainly states this in, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, which says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates the brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love God, or whoever does not love their brother or sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. We must love our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors, our enemies through the love of God. Things like anger and hatred and bitterness and, and envy and those negative emotions towards our neighbor, uh, towards other people, are an indicator that, that our love towards God is not pure. So, so if we need to love God and love people together, if we, if we need to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, what, what does that look like for us? What does that truly look like in our lives? Deuteronomy chapter 6 uh, is, is where the, this answer comes from. So, so the, the, the expert of the law knows the teachings of the Old Testament. And, and, and so he comes right to Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is a, an incredibly familiar passage to all of the people of, of Israel. It was one that they, they had been taught since they were little children. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5 say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Loving God means that we love him with all of our being. Not just part of it, but our whole being. Complete love. The, the love that God requires from, from us is to be done heart, soul, mind, and strength. The heart is the seat of our emotional nature. When we love God with our heart, we are loving him with our emotions, with our feelings. King David, as is, is the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back into Jerusalem, danced joyfully before the Lord and before the people. He, he danced so joyfully that his wife despised him for it, but, but he did so, he danced because his heart was full of gladness and joy at what was happening. He was worshiping his Lord, and he was doing so with his emotions. He worshiped with his feelings. We, we have a similar experience ourselves when, when we come 
to, knowledge, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in our lives. We have this, this overwhelming sense of, of joy at being forgiven, of having that weight of our sin and, and death removed from us and moving from, from eternal death to eternal life. That, that joy of, of salvation comes and it's, a, and it's an emotional wellspring in our lives. There are people, however, who look at the emotional nature of, of our relationship with God or, our, or the emotional nature of our love with God with suspicion, noting that, that emotions change, that they're fickle, that they, that they can be here one day and, and gone the next. They, they disappear over time. And, and while I agree that, that emotions ebb and fade or ebb and flow, that, that doesn't mean that, that an emotional love for God is a bad thing. It's not something negative. It's not something to be discounted. Our feelings are an important part of what makes us human. They were given to us by our Creator God in order to love Him and to worship Him. To ignore an emotional aspect of love means that we become mechanical. We almost become robotic in, in the way that we feel towards God or our love towards God. Feelings are an essential part of our love for God, and we must allow ourselves to engage our emotional nature in order to love God fully. If your emotional love for God has grown cold, if, if you're struggling in that area of, of your life, I would suggest that you pick out an attribute of God. Say, say his, his grace or his mercy or, or, or something to that nature and, and reflect upon how God has personally affected you with that attribute in your life how his mercy or his grace has, has personally come into your life and changed you. Take some time and, and just remember exactly what God has done for you in that. Recall specific times where, where God has impacted your life and allow that wellspring of joy to, to rise up and that gratitude to rise up within your heart. And, and then instead of stifling it, instead of trying to hold that emotion down, allow it to come. One of the, the problems that I've had in, in my relationship and, and even in my life is, is to allow those emotions to truly come up. You know, I was always taught, especially as a, as a young man growing up in Montana, that, that emotions were negative. And so, so I never really learned how to deal with my emotions. But, but the older I get, the, the wiser, hopefully, I get, um, the more I realize that emotions and our emotional nature is, is, a, is an important, vital aspect of our lives that we need to allow ourselves to give that to God fully so that we can love him fully with our emotions as well. So the second nature of our love is found in our will. It's the soul. It's, it's our self. Our soul is the seat of our volition, our will, our desire. Kenneth Woost, uh, a man I greatly respect, says this. It says, that part of man which wills and thinks and feels, or in other words, to the willpower, the reason, and the emotion, to the personality, and all of his activities, hopes, and aspirations. That's what, what he says our soul is, is that part that has all of those hopes and aspirations, the willpower, the reason. In other words, we must choose to love God. We must will ourselves to love God. On those days where we do not feel like it, on those days where we have intellectual doubt or or frustrations, or there's anger that creeps into our lives. We must choose to love God. Again, King David in the Old Testament is a great example of someone who chose to love God in spite of many, many trials and difficulties. 
a Psalm 22, which, which we often hear quoted because of Jesus as he quoted it on the cross. Psalm 22, verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. King David, as he was living his life, the life that, that, that it was before God, utters these words out of despair and frustration, yet, yet even though his life had all these difficulties in it, he never swerves in his love for the Lord. He concludes this lament psalm by praising God for his goodness, by praising God for his sovereignty, for the good things that he has done. Love is a choice that we must make. It's not a mysterious force that compels us that, that, that we just go along with. Love is a choice that we must make. It's an act of our will that we control. We must choose to love God. And that's, that's loving Him with our soul. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Christianity is not a check-your-brains-at-the-door kind of faith. We can and must love God with our intellectual nature as well. And one of the many things that I appreciate about God is that, is that God is not illogical. That, that creation is ordered, it's structured. God is a logical God. Much of our world wants to discount the Bible, discount religion as, as being myths and imagination. However, as we study science and we study the Bible, we see that they are in harmony, that they're not at odds with each other. However, they're not at odds with each other, but they actually complement each other. Engaging our minds, our intellect, and our love of God is good and necessary. I think many of us do this. We just do this naturally as we, as we study the Bible. Right? We, we take a passage or we, we take some scripture and maybe we don't understand exactly what it's saying, so we dig a little deeper. We find someone that, that maybe has, has gone through this before and, and they've studied it before and we look at maybe the Greek words or the Hebrew words and, and, and we study and we learn in the context of what it's talking about so that we understand better what the scripture is saying. Or maybe we memorize scripture and, and we think critically about how the questions of the Bible or how the Bible answers the questions of today. This is using our intellect in worship. This is, this is using our intellectual love. We grow in our desire and our, our knowledge of Christ and an appreciation of him in this way. By engaging our minds in worship, our love of God, by engaging our minds in worship and our love of God, we can weather seasons of dryness knowing in our minds that God is good, knowing in our minds that, that the Bible is true, knowing intellectually these things, that His grace and mercy are, are based on His goodness and not on our own efforts, knowing these things, even if we don't feel like it, we can, we can weather through storms. Even if those emotions aren't there, even if, even if we're going through time of dryness, we can weather through those storms. I hope you know that if you're going through a season of doubt, a season of dryness, where, where it seems like God is challenging, or like God is distant, and, and it's just a challenging time in your walk, I hope you know that you're not alone. 
that you're not the only one going through difficulties, and we are here to walk with you through that. The Bible is, is full of people who have had to go through this similar situations. David, the Psalms are, are a great reminder of, of people who have gone through trials and situations. Yet God was victorious. And as we engage our minds, as we engage our intellect, we can see the truth of how good God is. And we can love him and worship him through that. Continue to love God. Continue to seek him. And he will reveal himself to you in his timing. The last area that we must love the Lord our God with is our strength. It's our bodies. It's our physical nature. Love, in other words, compels us to do something. We cannot sit on the sidelines. We cannot admire Christ from a distance. We must engage our bodies as well. We must do something. First uh, John chapter three verse sixteen. Sorry, First John three sixteen through eighteen. Some of my favorite verses in, in the New Testament say this. Now that's Ephesians. There we go. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother and sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Love with actions. Love with truth. Serve the community that we're involved in. Serve the church. Serve the Lord. We, we do not work for our salvation. We do not work to earn our salvation. That salvation is a gift from God. However, out of love that we have, we willingly engage ourselves. We willingly give our time, our energy, and efforts if, if you do not spend time, if you're not spending time regularly engaging your strength, your body, in love for your Lord, then your love is incomplete and lacking. We must demonstrate the love of God through our actions to others. We must allow the light of Christ to shine brightly through us so that people can see our good deeds and worship God on the day He visits us. This can occur as we serve in the church. And if anyone is, is willing and wants to talk about how can I serve in the church, how can I, I do something to, to, to demonstrate my physical love in the church, then, then by all means, let's have that discussion. But it does not have to happen in the church. We can serve the world around us as long as what we're doing is pointing people towards Christ. I mean, we can, we can go and we can do stuff that, that's service-oriented. We can go and work in the community, but if we're not pointing people towards Christ, we're not truly serving Him. So, so serve the Lord in the community. Serve Him in the church. Serve Him however He is calling you to do, but, but by all means, engage your body, your strength, in your worship of Christ. Much of the trouble that I believe we see in modern Christianity is because people lack love for Christ in one or more of these areas. Uh, sometimes what we do is we focus on one area to the exclusion of the others. And so, so often what we see, you know, some groups of believers, they focus on the feelings, the feelings that they have for Christ. And there's nothing, again, wrong with, with loving God with our emotions or our feelings. But, but if that's the primary center and the exclusion of the others, then what happens is that, is that this leads to seeking an experience or an emotion rather than seeking the Lord. 
So we become so centered on trying to find that emotional high that we miss out on the other aspects of our love for God. Now, other groups focus primarily on the intellectual nature of love. They're studying God to understand Him better, which is good, but they do so to the point of losing the forest through the trees. They lose the majesty of God in the study of the minutiae. And many people excuse their soul or their strength as, as unnecessary in engaging God, in loving God. All, all four aspects are important. All four natures are important for us to love God fully. And we need to spend time in prayer and contemplation asking, asking God to help us identify and overcome our shortcomings. And so just a, a quick question to think about today is, what area of your life what area, what four, one of these four natures are you best at loving God in? I, I, I see this somewhat as, I, I don't know if you guys have gone through the, the five love languages. You know, the five love languages by Gary Chapman is a great, great book in helping us understand how we give and receive love. And, and, and in the same manner, how are you best at giving love towards God? Is it, is it with a heart, soul, mind, or strength? And, and then maybe ask yourself also, uh, spend time asking yourselves and contemplating, where am I struggling? Which of these areas do I struggle in giving my love to the Lord? Heart, soul, mind, strength. Understanding oneself, understanding who we are and where we are tempted or where we struggle and, and where we are strong helps us to grow deeper in our relationship and knowledge of Christ. It helps us to grow in our love for him and appreciation. The account of Mary and Martha and I'd say the story, but I, I, I despise the word story, I, at least as it relates to the Bible. Because the word story in our society has, has become a fictitious, like we say story, we instantly think of a fictitious story, right? A, a, a made-up story. And, and, and there's really not a better word to say, you know, the story of Mary and Martha. So, so I use the word account. The account that's in the Bible of Mary and Martha, because it's not a made-up story, it's, it's an account of Mary and Martha, uh, serves as an example to believers as how we ought to love the Lord. Uh, we're told that all scriptures God breathed, that the Holy Spirit has inspired the authors to write what they wrote and then to insert what they wrote into the place where they wrote it. This means that at times the things in the Bible aren't written in chronological order. For our Western minds, we don't comprehend that. Right? Like, like everything is ordered and neat and, and the order is chronological. But, but in the Bible, not everything is always chronological. And I bring this up because, because really in the life of of Jesus, if, if we're moving chronologically, the story of Mary and Martha did not occur directly after the story of the Good Samaritan, which is the part that we skipped. It did not occur after the expert came in and asked this question. Uh, if you're curious, I can, I can discuss that more with you now, but, but suffice to say that, that there's a very strong likelihood that these things did not happen in chronological order. Rather, Luke put it here at this part, at this juncture, to illustrate a point that he was trying to make, or, or the Holy Spirit had Luke put it here to illustrate what loving God looks like. So the question then is, is what, is it about, what, what does the Spirit want us to understand here? 
What, what is, is so important about this story that this this account that, that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to put it here? What is it teaching us about? And, and to put it simply, I think what, what the story, what, what the Spirit is trying to tell us is that loving God is about being, not doing. Martha was busy doing for the Lord. Mary chose to be with the Lord. And Jesus tells us that Mary chose that which was better. Mary chose to be with Jesus instead of working for Jesus. Martha, uh, it's, Martha saw Mary as, as being lazy and distracted. It, it's kind of like as, you know, the, the kid that mysteriously disappears anytime it's chore time. You know, or the kid that disappears as soon as dinner's over. I, I know that no parents ever experience this whatsoever, but, but kids that magically just like disappear as soon as dinner's over and they forget to clean off the table. I, I kind of see Martha as, as viewing Mary like that. Like it's time to do the work and she just magically uh, just disappeared. So, so Martha sees Mary as like lazy and distracted. Uh, Mary was absent from preparing the meal from doing that work that needed to be done. She was absent from the work because she was present with the Savior. Jesus did not see Mary as lazy. He didn't see her as distracted. He knew her, rather, as a loving disciple. He did not view Mary as this distracted servant who needed to get back into the kitchen, but rather he saw her as a devoted follower of him. At a time where, where women were not allowed to learn, at a time where, where they were not allowed to sit at the foot of a rabbi and, and learn something, Jesus was radically progressive. In, in fact, if we look at the Bible, we don't see anywhere where Jesus discriminates against anybody, whether it's uh, male or female or, or Samaritan or Jewish or, or whatever the case may be. The only people that he gets upset with, the only people that he, he truly disagrees with are the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day that... that wouldn't tolerate people. Jesus allowed Mary to be at his feet. He, he had her there and she was learning from him. Mary wanted to learn. She, she wanted to be near Jesus and he was not going to take that away from her. You know, Martha, for her part, I've always seen Martha as like the antagonist, the bad guy in the story, right? But, but Martha, for her part, was a dedicated, hardworking person. She knew it had to get done, and she went about doing it. She didn't complain about having to do the work, right? We don't see here in, in the story uh, where Martha was complaining about doing the work. What she complained about was that Mary wasn't helping her. Martha missed the, the reality that the creator of the universe, that God himself was sitting in the room next to her, and that she could be with him. She could be with God himself. She complained that Mary was spending time with God. She missed that which was amazing because she was distracted by things that were good. Really, it, it was good for her to serve, right? It was, it was good for her to do these things. It wasn't a bad thing that she was doing, going about preparing the meal or going about serving. But in the presence of the King of Kings, the good things of this world become insignificant. Loving God requires us to be present 
in his midst, heart, soul, mind, and strength. To be sure, the Christian life requires action, but not at the expense of a deep, loving, abiding relationship in Christ. We can easily fall into the trap of making activity, of mistaking activity for devotion or love. But as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we can have all of these things. We can, we can do all of these things. We can speak in the tongues of angels. We can, we can do all of these things. But if we have not love, we're a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. Basically, we're just making empty noise. It is from the overflow of the heart that our mouth speaks. And it is also from the overflow, from that same overflow, that our service comes. There is danger in us busily serving without having an abiding relationship in the Lord. We cannot serve well. We, we cannot bear fruit if we are not abiding in Jesus. John chapter 15, verses, I, I believe it's verse 5 there. Um, John chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what Jesus tells us, that, that we must remain in him. We are not productive in our service if we are not first persistent in our relationship. From our relationship flows the strength and energy and directions, guidance necessary for our growth and service. Without the guidance of the Holy Spirit, without him guiding us, we have no direction or instruction as to what God is calling us to do. When I was a, a younger pastor in our Lee, one of the gentlemen of the church uh, who used to go there before my time passed away, and they were having this service at the church, and, and the old pastor that was his pastor 30 years prior came to the service to be there to, to show his support for the family. And he was telling me this story as, as the service concluded. He was telling me that, that when he was at the, the church, and so in our Lee, the parsonage, which is a church-owned house, is attached to the, the church building itself. And that's where we lived as a family, and that's where he lived with his family when he was there. He was telling me that the parsonage was small and it needed a renovation, but the elders wouldn't do it. They wouldn't commit to doing it. So when he decided it was time for him to move on, as he packed his stuff up, before he left, he took a chainsaw, him and one other man in the church, they took a chainsaw and they cut the roof off of the church parsonage just decided we're going to go ahead and, and start this project. Problem was that the elders never said yes. The elders didn't agree to this, but, but they started the project, and because they started it, they had to finish it. Sometimes we do this with God. We don't know what God wants us to do. We don't know what God's plan for us to, is to do, but, but we have an idea that we want. We have a plan that we want, and so we just go off and we do it. And then we say, God, well, I hope you're with me. You know, uh, come along. Uh, we, uh, the problem is, is that we make that plan. We start a project and we move in a direction without once consulting God as to what he wants or what his will is. We spin our wheels and we labor in vain because we act without first being present with our God and allowing the Holy Spirit to guide our hearts and our plans. We are called to love the Lord our God with everything that we have. We can only do this because he has first loved us. John succinctly states this in, in John, 1 John, rather, chapter 4, verse 19. Oh. It's very succinct. 
We love because he first loved us. It is only through the love that God has for us that we are able to fully love those around us, that we're able to love our neighbors and our enemies and even God. Uh, God's love for us is absolute. It's total and it's complete. There, there are no conditions to God's love. There's no, none of this in God that says, I will love you if you do this for me. Or, or I would love you, but, but I've seen your heart. I know your heart, and, and I just can't love you. That's not God at all. That's not God because God's love is not based upon us. He does not love us because we are lovable. That's often how we act as humans, though. Right? That, that's, that's how our love as humans is based. And so what happens is, is we put that upon God. Because we, we tend to think in terms of like, I love this person because they're likable and they, they have the similar experiences to me or they have similar likes to me or, or whatever. The, our love is all, often based on those emotions and that, that similarity. And, and so when someone becomes less appealing in our eyes, when someone becomes less agreeable to us, we often fall out of love with them. Because our love is not based upon things that are concrete, like Christ. Our love is based on ourselves. And so we take this idea, we take this notion, this, this concept of love that we have, and we take it and we put that upon God as well, saying that, that if that's the way we feel, then that must be what love is with God. And, and so we, we allow that thinking to filter into our theology and how we perceive God's love. And so our human tendency is to see God's love for us as based on how lovable we are, on how well we are doing. Entire religions are built on this premise. This idea that, that if I'm good enough, that if I'm lovable enough, then God will have to accept me. It's called works theology. And it's patently false. God's love for us is not based on what we do. His acceptance of us is not based on how good we are. God loves us because God is love. It's his nature to love. His love for us, in other words, is based on his character. It's founded within him. And as such, it's not subjected to change to our actions. It's not subject to change to our actions or our goodness. God's love is founded upon him, and it will not fail. 1 John chapter 4, and, and we've been in 1 John probably as much as we've been in Luke today. I would recommend just taking... A, a few minutes in reading it each day this week. Just let the truth that John preaches and teaches here sink in. So First John chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 8, says, God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God loves us so much that while we were sinners, while we were far off from him, living in opposition to him, he willingly chose to come and to be one of us. He willingly chose to live and then to suffer greatly and die for us, to demonstrate his love and to open a way for us to receive that love. Because of his great love for us, we are able to, to love him in return. And we are able to love each other. It is 
through his forgiveness that we can find the capacity and ability to love others who would otherwise be difficult or impossible for us to love. It is through his forgiveness that we can respond to the love of God. And we are freed from our guilt and we can love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The problem that the expert in the law had was that he thought he was good enough, that he was loving God enough, that he loved his neighbor enough. He didn't realize how far short he had fallen. Jesus, though, demonstrates to him and to us that our own love is inadequate. So we must first have God's love flowing through us in order for us to, allow, to love our neighbor and ourself, and to love our neighbor as ourself, and to be able to love God fully. If you've never experienced God's love for you, if, if you're still caught up on how could God love me, who's so unlovable, who's, who's done so many things, who's, who, who's so ugly on the inside, if you're, if you're caught up in that, I, I, I want, I implore you this morning to pray and ask God where his love for you is based. Because the reality is his love is not based upon your performance. His love is based upon himself and he loves you. He loves you heart, soul, mind, and strength because that is who he is. And I implore you this morning, if you've never received that love, if you've never allowed the love of Christ to wash over you and to forgive you and, and to cleanse you from your sins, then, then this morning, make that choice. Confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, and then you will be saved. You'll feel that love. You will experience that love that God has for you. God loves us. Because that's who he is. He forgives us because he loves us completely. And he wants you to come. He wants all of us to come to him and to receive his love. Let's pray. Father, I just want to take a moment and, and give anybody who has never responded to your love that opportunity to do so. Lord, the, the self-doubt of I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm, I'm, I'm not together enough. Lord, may, may you destroy that as we realize that our love, that your love is not based on who we are, but rather it's based on who you are. And Father, I pray for all of us. I pray for each and every one of us here that, that we may love you, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we may focus on being in your presence. Guide us this morning. Direct us. Teach us, Lord. We need you. In your name we pray. Amen.